A prayer for the church from Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And this is part 12 in our series on Ephesians. So as we continue our series on Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we now come to the end of chapter 3, which also concludes the first half of the letter. And many of us who have read Paul's letters will notice, will realise that uh, his letters are usually in two parts. It's not just Paul, but Peter does, does the same. And Ephesians is, is, is no exception to that. In the first half, chapters 1 to 3, the Apostle sets out a number of very important doctrinal principles. A lot of truth. How are you going? A lot of meaty stuff in there. And then in the second half, in chapters 4 to 6, he applies these doctrines to the Christian life. So he answers the question, so what does it all mean for us? As he applies that truth to our lives. And that is what he does in the rest of this letter. But before he moves on, Paul wraps up this tremendous doctrinal section with a heartfelt prayer before God. He's so moved to the very, by the very thought of how God's eternal plan has played out in history and in his own life that he prays for the church at Ephesus. And for us, for us, all of us who are reading this, and meditating on this 2,000 years later, this prayer includes all of us, every believer. So let's recall that in, at the beginning of chapter 3, in, in verse 1, he began by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Then just as he's about to go into his prayer, he goes on to this Massive digression. No, he doesn't suddenly remember that he's got to buy some cat food as he's about to pray. Oh, by the way, you know how sometimes we get distracted when we're about to pray with all these other stuff? Oh, the alarm's going off. Oh, there's something on Facebook. No. He talked about how the Gentiles have been brought near to Christ. And then about the mystery of how the two exclusive opposites, the the Gentiles, the the Jews have been united together in Christ. There's no difference now that that wall, that dividing wall, that partition that was there has been broken down. These are the very conditions, this is all the stuff that he's been saying, these are the conditions that have undergirded his prayer. It was his knowledge of God's eternal purpose which formed the basis of his prayer. It wasn't some airy-fairy stuff. Something just just pops into his head. Now, this is all the stuff that he's been saying and suddenly it's come into the throne of God. This is why the Bible is essential 
also in our prayer life. Bible reading and prayer should always go together. Read the Bible and pray. You're going to pray, read the Bible. One feeds into the other directly. In that way, in that way, you are ready to pray based on God's purposes, based on God's eternal purposes, not just your temporary circumstances, but you are connecting with God from his perspective and looking at your life as part of God's eternal plan. Now there are three parts there are three parts to his prayer and this is also a good practice these three parts when we pray. The first of all is the invocation verses 14 to 15. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. It's interesting, straight away we we notice that he's kneeling, but it's interesting that in the Bible, nowhere do we find a command that this is the way that we are to pray, that we are to kneel down. There is no command for a particular posture for prayer. For the Jew, the normal posture was standing up. Here, Paul is kneeling as he prays, and by doing so, he's He's indicating this submissive attitude toward the Heavenly Father who has brought all these things to pass. Now, according to the intensity of the situation that we face, whatever draws us to prayer, it could be a sickness, it could be our family, it could be the church, it could be something else. According to the intensity that we feel, we sense in our hearts, We either stand up, we kneel, or even in Jesus' case in Gethsemane, he fell down to his face and prayed. In some churches, it is a tradition to to kneel in prayer, and that's why they have these kneeling pads in front of and then everybody kneels together. But is that because everybody else is doing it or because you feel it in your heart that you want to pray that way. You have an option, I suppose. But don't just do it for show. Don't just do it because it's tradition. Do it from the heart. Because ultimately, the position of the heart is more important than the position of the body. Paul reminds us of the glorious privilege of knowing that the Holy God, the creator of the universe, is also our father, our daddy. Yes, there is a sense in which all men, in general, share in the fatherhood of God. And the word that is used here for family can also mean fatherhood. And even though a verse such as this can be used of those who believe in the cause and push the cause of universalism, the universalism teaches that everybody will be saved or will go to heaven one day. It doesn't matter what you believe or what God you follow. All the roads lead to Rome type of thing. 
There is nothing of that here. There is no such thing in the Bible as the universal fatherhood of God that saves all men. Yes, as creator, God is the father of each man. But as the saviour, he is only the father of those who believe. Because of the reconciling work of Christ, our sin no longer drives a wedge between us and God. And it is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit which reveals this truth to us. And, and notice how this prayer is strictly Trinitarian. There is the Father, there is the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. Right there. All addressed in this prayer. It almost goes without saying that for us as Christians, praying is an area that we all really need to grow in. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Paul is now giving us an example of the content of his prayer. He has a prayer list that he works through. He's mentioning, he's telling them, this is what I'm praying for, for you guys. And he writes this to them. Now, if we were to examine the content, look back at the content of our prayers, and this is why it's good to sometimes write down our prayers. If we were to actually write down the content of our prayers, what are the type of things that would be in there? And you'll probably find that you're probably not as different to everybody else. There are two main things that preoccupy us in our prayer life. You're either asking God to take away the pain, either for you or for somebody else, or asking him to change the adverse circumstances that we are facing, either you or somebody else that you love. No one likes pain and no one enjoys going through difficult situations. It goes without saying. So it's natural to pray that your pain would stop and that your circumstances would improve. Two things. The problem is that over time, those two categories can take over all our prayers that we never pray for anything else. The thanksgiving, the invocation, the dedication to the glory of God and his purposes sort of take a a back seat somewhere. His eternal purposes, well, whatever. Yet we notice here that Paul doesn't mention any of those things. He doesn't mention his pain, his circumstances. In his prayer, he doesn't do that. And he doesn't ask God to change that. Now, this might appear a a little strange to us, but this is because he was so totally committed, submitted to God's purpose, which in his case, and in many of our cases, and in many the majority of Christians around the world, includes pain and it includes difficulty. And he's not praying for deliverance from those things. 
but that God be glorified in and through the pain and in and through the difficulty. Can we live with that? Now he moves to the petition, verses 16 to 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how how wide and how, how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. How many dimensions is that? And, and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. What a statement. What a prayer. What a request. So we can break up this, this prayer into four requests here. This petition. And, and these are, are not separate, like independent from one another, but they all interlock and they all flow from one to the next. So first of all, he, pray for, he prays for strength in verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So why does he pray for strengthening by the spirit in the inner, inner man, inner being? Because our greatest need is for spiritual power on the inside. That's why. No believer can grow and advance and stand up to the trials without God's power. So here is a prayer for spiritual strength to do the work God gives us to do. Notice again that the prayer is not, Lord, take away burdens, but rather, Lord, give my brothers and sisters stronger shoulders so they can carry the load. Give them strength, give them fuel, give them a stronger motor. There's a very well-known quote that is originally said, originally uh, preached by Pastor Philip Brooks in the 1800s. He was the the pastor who wrote uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And that quote was repeated by John F. Kennedy in 1963, the year I was born, by the way, um, at, at a prayer breakfast. JFK repeated this phrase in 1963. And this is what he said, what he, what he quoted. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. You remember it. I wonder if we can pray like that. It's very deep, isn't it? That's the next point. The depth. 
verse 17. At first, it seems a little strange that Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, because it's strange, because I thought that Christ, the Holy Spirit, dwells in our hearts, in the hearts of every believer. The moment you put your faith in Christ, he comes to live inside, right? But there are two similar words that the Apostle Paul could have used here. One word means to stay in a place like a, like a tourist at a motel or an Airbnb, temporarily, just coming and going. The other means to settle down permanently as opposed to temporarily. Paul prays to the Father that Christ, by his Spirit, will be allowed to settle down in their hearts and from that throne control and strengthen and direct the lives of the believers. You see, until Christ is at home in your heart, he will always seem like an intruder, a stranger, even though he lives in you, oh Jesus, just don't go in that room because, you know, that room is, I'm going to do my stuff here. Just forgive me for this, but I need my own privacy, you see. You can't go in there and definitely don't go in that one. Right? Different compartments. But when Christ comes in, he wants to take over the whole joint. There's no division, sections, it's, it's everything. And until Christ is at home in your heart, he will always seem like a stranger. When he comes knocking, he comes in to settle down, not leave. Okay, I'm going. Remember the words that Jesus spoke to the, not to the unbelievers, but to the believers of the church at Laodicea in Revelations. This is what he he said to them. And these, these words are often misquoted, by the way, but this is the context. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That's fellowship. That's hospitality. That's what Jesus wants. Now this new humanity that God is creating through the church, is God's family. That is why we call each other brothers and sisters who are to love each other and love their father. Now we have two metaphors, two pictures that reinforce the fact that our love is not merely to be superficial, but it has to be something else. First of all, it says rooted. This word comes from the plant world. Plants have roots. The tree must get its roots deep in the soil if it is to have nourishment, if it has to have stability. And in most plants, these roots are not seen. They're actually under the ground. So you don't, the tree, all you see from the outside is this humongous tree, but you don't know how deep those roots are. 
And the trees used by the, in the Bible as a, as a sign of spiritual health. Jeremiah 17 verses 7 to 8 said, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. That will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. It's deeper. And the other image, the other metaphor that the apostle uses is grounded. Now grounded, we we go from the plant world, we go to the construction, to the architectural, it's an architectural term. To be grounded refers to the foundations on which we build. And like a good building that is many times a building placed in a challenging environment, if you don't go deep, you won't be able to go high because the ground just simply won't be able to support it. The foundation is not good enough. The storms that blow will eventually reveal the strength of your foundation and the depth of your roots. This is why Paul prayed that the believers might have a a deeper, rather than superficial, a deeper experience with Christ to sustain them through the severe trials of life. And writing these words from jail, awaiting his death sentence, he knew what he was talking about. What else does he pray for? He prays that they would grasp, take hold of, in verses 18 to 19, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We should know what to grasp means, uh, to take hold, it means to grabs hold of something and you know it is entirely possible to think you understand something to understand the concept but not really make it your own and even if you do sometimes understand it like uh, you're reading the instructions on how to run your your camera or your car whatever the moment you start whatever now what was that again you forgot all about it But when you grasp something, you repeat it, you do it constantly, it becomes part of who you are because you understand it's second nature. Many people think they understand something, think that they grasp something, but they don't really understand the full implications of it. That's the other problem. Like, you know, you would have heard a lot of stories of of young people says, yeah, Dad, I'm going to join the army. Why are you going to do that? Well, it's exciting. They're going to teach me a trade. They're going to give me a wage. I'm going to travel, travel the world. That's what I'm going to do. But son, don't you think that that involves you signing off going to war? Really? I think it's, didn't know that's what soldiers did. That's the implication, right? 
And in fact, when the army gives all these other benefits, that's the first and foremost thing in their mind, that you are going to be prepared to die for your country. That's the implication. Paul's concern is that they lay hold of the vast expanses of the love of God and all that that involves. All Christians have already experienced the love of Christ, but not all Christians have responded to that love in the same degree. And what I mean is that when the going gets tough, many fall by the wayside. Parable of the the seed is is here, right? But but Jesus also expressed this principle in the house of a Pharisee when when he said, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You will respond in the measure to which you are. You have been forgiven. I've seen this many times. You probably have as well. But maybe this has been your own experience. Those who in their life have been through the pits of hell, they know what hell is like. You see them. And they just love the Lord to a, to a, with, a, with a passion. That I, who have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, in a protected environment by and large, I can't even understand that. Their, their love is so deep and, and strong. You've come across these people and say, gee, I wish I... You know, it's those who have been forgiven little love little. And, and, but the prayer here is that you will love... Christ, like to, with every ounce of your being, the same degree. And love itself has many dimensions, doesn't it? It goes into all of these different directions. It's, it's a fourth dimensional thing. And it's not just, it doesn't stop, it's continually expansive continues to grow. And there is a paradox here. I don't know if you know it or not. On the one hand, Paul wants us to know personally the love of Christ, but at the same time he acknowledges that it surpasses knowledge or understanding. He wants us to know, but it surpasses all knowledge and understanding. So how am I supposed to know that? In, the other, in other words, then he talks about dimensions. But then he says they cannot be measured. No matter how far you go in your knowledge of Christ's love, you will never, ever, ever come to the end of it. It's not a destination that you're going to reach this side of heaven. And even in heaven, it will just continue to amaze you. For this reason... No Christian should ever need to worry about having inadequate spiritual resources to meet the demands of life. You read the Bible and you should not be running on empty. 
Even worse, no Christian should ever feel unloved or abandoned by the Father. The secret is not doing another course or reading another book. What we all need to do is pray for spiritual strength and spiritual depth to grasp, to get our hands on all of the resources that are found in God's love and his grace. That's what we need to understand. I can't do that for you. I can encourage you, I can pray for you, but this is something that you're going to have to experience yourself. And and, and taking hold of this truth, Paul wrote to the Romans these famous words, Romans 8, 37 to 39. You've got to love this. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's another way of saying exactly what he said to the Ephesians. Fullness. Second part of verse 19, when Paul says that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. We don't quite, we just, you know, sail through these words but don't really come to grips with the implications of what they mean. It is actually a mind-blowing concept because the fullness that Paul is talking about here is is the fullness of God himself and God himself fills it. The more that you dwell on him and his love and the more he dwells in your heart by faith, the more and more you are filled with the fullness of God. You don't want to be empty of God, you want to be full of God. And here's an important principle from nature. You will see it everywhere. All of nature hates a vacuum. All of nature hates a vacuum. This is why air, all of nature, wherever you go, you're going to find air or water will automatically fill or flow into an empty space. Wherever it is. There's no such thing as emptiness. Look around you and you will see how this physical reality also applies in the spiritual realms. People will often talk about, even Christians, many times will talk about, you know, I feel so empty. Why? Why? You, you have everything at your disposal. And, 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 and people... Even Christians, they, they try to fill that, that emptiness with three P's. Three P's. Position, possessions, and passions. Remember those. Position, possessions, and passions. You try to fill that emptiness that, with something, some title, some pleasure. They try all these things except 
God that is there knocking on the door. Here I am. Dwight Moody, the preacher, hundred years ago or more, uh, once gave an illustration of God's fullness. And he held up a, a glass and said, tell me how I can get the air out of this, this glass in a, in a meeting. And one man said, well, just suck it out with a pump. And Moody said, no, 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 because the moment you do that, you create a vacuum and the glass will shatter. After many suggestions and all of this, Moody picked up a, a jug and filled the glass with water. There, he said, all the air is now removed. Simple, isn't it? So God wants us to experience his fullness. And, and, and when we say that, that, that word fullness triggers all sorts of spiritual experiences and all of that. It's, it's not that complicated, folks. And, and please don't make the mistake of measuring yourself against someone you think to be a weaker Christian. Well, I'm better than him or I'm better than her. No. <laughs> what is our standard? What is the measure? It's Christ. That is the measure. It's him. And now we come to the third, third part in our prayer, which is the benediction, verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And yet again... Another remarkable statement. If, if Paul had simply said that God is able to do anything we ask or think, we would probably want to highlight this verse and say, yes, it's true, because it's repeated in other parts of the Bible. But he doesn't say that. He says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That is to say that if we come up with some vision for the church, some goal for our lives that is God-honouring, our vision will inevitably fall short or be too small, too realistic. This is because God is not limited or in some way or in any way handicapped by our puny imagination or modest expectations. He's not. You read the scriptures and throughout the scriptures he exceeds human expectations all the time. And if you, if you look back in, on your own Christian life you would have to Agree with this. I mean, Ted just told us a story from someone brought up in the Galilee family with a broken leg and we prayed for him. Who would have thought he was going to become a pastor planting a church years later? Who does that? Who does that? God does. 
now, to help you understand these, these verses, and I want you to remember this, uh, I'm going to give you a pyramid here, just to, so you're locked into your mind about what these, these, these words are saying. So, here we come to Abel, that God is able, then he says, able to do, then able to do what we ask, then able to do what we ask or imagine. That's all okay, right? But then he goes on, able to do more than all that we ask or imagine. Okay, I'm, wow, that's already amazing. But then he says, able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And there's that, that pyramid, and, and the original language is actually more than that. But so you can understand it in the English, it's already amazing, right? And some writers, some, some commentaries and others, yes, well, Paul is engaging in some hyperbole here, you know, he's just, well, no, this is how he lived his life. And we have to believe this through faith. It's not in us. This is what God does. Paul seems to use every word possible to convey to us the vastness of God's power that's found in Jesus. With all that he is and all that he has at his disposal, it's amazing to think that God intends on being glorified through the church. He could reach the world in so many other different ways, but he chooses to do it through the church, through Christians, through his family, through his children. And these two things go together. One thing is certain that without Christ, without the power of his spirit, we can do nothing. But connected to Christ, as our first reading said, you're the vine. Empowered by his spirit, the church can make a difference when we cannot possibly see how. And yet Christ has been doing it for a long time now and he will continue to do it. And he's working in our world as challenging as it is, the times in which we live, let us be strengthened in every way so we can withstand and give glory to God in our lives, through his church, for his glory. Amen.